Hi everyone, Sam here. Thank you so much for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we dive in, if you want to enjoy premium access to the podcast and want to read or listen to the unmissable and informative journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to The Policy Dispatch. I'm your host, Sam Morgan. On today's episode, we're going to be talking all about the outlook for the energy transition in 2023 and what the near future holds for renewables, electricity markets, investments, and so on. Let's talk us through what we can expect to see. I was fortunate enough to sit down with Yaron Reistat, the CEO and founder of Reistat Energy, an influential research and intelligence firm. We talked about how 2022 may well have been a tipping point for clean energy, how investments will still need to be made to some extent in fossil fuels, how Europe needs to join the USA in its race to top on green tech, as well as how regulation needs to catch up with the pace being set by technologies. Stay tuned for that insightful conversation. Just before we get to that, it's time for the policy dispatch quiz question. Today, I'm asking you, in 2022, China invested more in renewable power than coal power. But by what degree? Was it twice as much, six times as much, 11 times as much, or 15 times as much? Answer later, now, on with the show. So, welcome, Yaran, to this podcast. This is the 11th episode, I think, of the Policy Dispatch. We're here in Brussels, where you've opened up a new office here mm. in the middle of the EU capital. Um, maybe you could just give us a, you know, an insight into why you've done that. Do you think that Brussels is going to be the, the center of where energy policy making is going to be for the foreseeable future? Clearly, it's uh, important. It's one of the global hubs. You know, New York is a global hub and, and Brussels is a global hub, you know, even if it's a hub for EU. Uh, it, it, you know, we find people from all kinds of nations here all the time. So, and of course, a lot uh, also related to EU. Uh, so, but this is our office number 30. So it's a natural place to be also uh, with, when we have this portfolio of offices. Yes, Brussels was a natural selection. If we, you know, we get straight into it about the different topics we're going to talk about today. One of the things I really wanted to ask you was a lot of headlines lately have been how, you know, oil and gas majors are reporting these record profits around the world yeah. um, for 2022. What kind of impact can we expect from this windfall that these companies are going to make? Is it going to be greener operations for these companies, a faster transition to clean energy generation? How will this affect how the energy transition goes ahead? Yes, I think partly they will pay back to the shareholders, either as dividend or as a share buyback. Uh, but also, uh, almost all of the major oil companies have stated we want to be energy companies uh, and we want to be relevant in 2050. And to be relevant in 2050, you need to be heavily invested in renewables, in hydrogen, in CCUS, etc. So, uh, and gradually the investments will go from, from being majority of oil and gas investments to a majority of, of green investments. So, uh, so I think they will uh, reinvest a lot of this in renewables. But I think a common misunderstanding also is that, yes, since oil and gas will be peaking and declining, we don't need more investments in oil and gas. But then you forget that actually the, the oil and gas wells are declining with 20% every year. 
So if, if you just lean back and don't invest anything, then you will be short of oil and gas two years from now. And then you will have a tremendous price fly up. And because you, you cannot shed all the cars, etc., all the airplanes, all the, all the ships at, at that occasion. So people will be, will be overbidding to get oil and gas. So it will actually be quite significant oil and gas investments also over the next two decades. But this is not a contradiction or this is not going to, to, to stop the green shift to happen. But the green shift is, it has to focus on the consumption technologies. And then investors can invest what they think is needed on the upstream part. And the market will actually regulate how much of that investments or infrastructure you will actually be using. Now, if we switch to these renewables as well, investments um, last year outpaced upstream oil and gas for the <coughs> first time, I believe. Um, is it going to be too early to say that 2022, 2023 is going to be this tipping point for the energy transition? We're suddenly... I think uh, actually 2022 was the tipping point. According to our latest figures, we saw um, wind, solar, and battery investments at $520 billion. And we saw oil and gas investments at like 480 or something. You know, depends a little bit on currency rates, etc. How, how we are doing it. So meaning that it's higher investments already in renewables. And so this is a tipping point and it's very logical because renewables offer cheaper energy and also more secure energy, because most of the renewable energy is, is more under domestic control. So when you have a technology that is cheaper and better, that is the signal for a tipping point. So we are then in the, in the bottom of the S-curve, we're going from uh, typically a 10% to a 90% uh, penetration within uh, a decade or two. So it is really cost of ownership is now cheaper for renewables and also for electric vehicles. So, uh, so we are in the middle of a technology shift and we are just past the tipping point, I think. Is this ahead or behind expectations from your point of view in terms of the timeline or is it on track? Maybe slightly ahead of. I mean, people regard me as very optimistic always, you know, and, and, and last year I said to track to what we call the 1.6 degree scenario, uh, you need 13.5% global penetration of electric vehicles of new sales in 2022. And people were skeptical, uh, and I was regarded as optimistic to, 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 to state that, that figure. But it ended up at 16, higher than even I expected. And, and, and now we have a prediction of 22% next year. Honestly, I think it will be slightly higher now, because it was 22% already in December. Yeah. So it is actually going very fast. But... I also I try to look at analogies. You know what, how how fast has thing happened before? And and people say big well maybe an iPhone you can you can have that fast penetration, but a big infrastructure system like uh, like the oil and gas industry it cannot be uh, transformed that quick. But then looking at that one analogy from coal used in transportation in 1945 in America we have very precise data for that. It was 150 million ton. And people had a, were worried it was not enough coal to feed the economic growth expected after World War II. But what happened was from 1945 to 1960, the consumption went down 97% from 150 to three or two uh, or three or four million tons. So it was, this was a gigantic uh, infrastructure 
with locomotives, with, with storage, with cleaning, with transportation, you know, all of that completely wiped off in 15 years. Uh, uh, so that was trains and ships, actually, the combination of that, uh, and due to this structural technology shift that was driving these changes. And I think we'll see similar, completely uh, kind of change out of, of, of big energy infrastructure uh, for the next uh, 15 years. If we're talking about dramatic trajectories, I guess one of the, the biggest exponents of that is solar PV. Look at any energy graph and it's going to the heavens. Yeah. Is 2023 going to be this year of solar that some people are saying? Is this going to be a real, you know, the technology to watch? What are your insights there? Yes, uh, I think we landed at 220 gigawatt last year. Uh, the limiting factor has been the access to polysilicon. You know, and, and the price fly up actually. Uh, solar panels over the last two years has become 30% more expensive. Uh, but now we see that the bottlenecking of polysilicon is actually happening. So from 700,000 tons, which corresponds to about 200 megawatt, uh, gigawatt of, of solar panels, uh, we are now uh, seeing that ex- expansion to 2 million already the end of this year. And the pipeline is, is 4 or 5 million. So we see actually a, a, a six-folding of capacity within five years, actually, globally. Uh, so, uh, so, so this is one of the supply chains that will be de-bottlenecked. But for 2023, that is not fully de-bottlenecked. We are still in the aftermath of, of both uh, the COVID uh, supply chain squeeze uh, and this polysilicon supply chain squeeze. So, so I think it will be slightly less growth it will clearly have growth uh, this year and maybe in 2024. But then I see it will really take off from 2025 and onwards. And I think we are actually tracking to more than 1,000 gigawatt in annual installations in the 2030s. And that is what is needed to, uh, to track to the 1.6 degree scenario again. We're here in Brussels. There's been a lot of worries, shall we say, over the last couple of months because of what the United States is doing with the Inflation Reduction Act that's prompted European politicians to start thinking a little bit more seriously about the industrial aspects of the Green Deal. Um, Do you see this race to the top that they're calling it in green technologies and energy in the coming months and years as a result and that to be replicated around the world where countries will be racing against one another to... Yes. ...to invest more? Of course, it it, it has been really shaking uh, the industry. Of course, uh, uh, currently, the, the, for example, the solar supply, supply chain is extremely dominated by Chinese. In, in, if you look at modules, uh, wafers, uh, polysilicon, etc., between 80 and 98% of the capacity is in China. So, so clearly that is a, a geopolitical uh, issue. Uh, so uh, the Western world need to build out their more, more capacity. Uh, and the, the Inflation Reduction Act is, is clearly a very kind of a strong measure to, to, to facilitate that. Um, but of course, we see now that, that battery factories that was planned to be built in Europe are now moved to America. And uh, the Green Deal, it, it was quite some incentives, but really it's not, nothing compared to the... To the to America, then you actually have the right, legal right to get their refund. But then the details of that is not completely clear yet, you know, because 
clearly you, if you commit uh, billions of dollars to a, a project, you don't want the Republicans to change that in 2024. And, and suddenly you get no tax refund. So it has to be committed into kind of a legal framework that, you, that will allow investors to really believe in it. Uh, and uh, the details of that is now being done, you know. Uh, so uh, I just spoke to uh, one of the American <laughs> uh, governmental representatives about, uh, about how this should be done. Um, so because so I think some people in, in EU are skeptical that actually Americans will stick to it. They look at uh, they look at uh, Congress and uh, and uh, say that well it it will be stopped by the Republicans etc. Yeah, yeah, but I I think it will happen uh, but, and and I think it will be uh, and I think uh, we need a countermeasure from Europe also and it, it's room for both actually we it's not going to be either or we need both of it um, so. Um, uh, so EU, uh, in one way, is a good challenge. It's, it's a race for the speed of the green shift. And, and, and also the, by the, the fundamentals, it actually makes a lot of sense because the faster you invest in the green shift, the less investments you need longer term. Because, uh, because those invest- investments, are, yes, it's very upfront, but then you take away a lot of operational cost uh, related to the fossil fuel system that you have to do in any case uh, if, if you don't do that investment fast enough. So actually, even for the world, uh, for the, what, uh, the, the capital profile of the global energy system, it's a benefit to speed that up. Uh, and the market forces will make it uh, kind of balanced also on the supply chain, but with some interruptions. You know, but So, so I, I, I would kind of encourage... Uh, European politicians to make something similar and, and we can live with both of it. You mentioned already how you know supply chain constraints have a cooling effect on how quickly um, yeah. green, green technology can be rolled out. How about other issues such as like permitting, which a lot of renewable energy deployers say is a big issue? Yes, clearly that has uh, have a cooling effect as well. Permitting legislation you know many countries they are not uh, allowed to integrate battery plants in their grid because it's not a definition in the legal system you know they are defining these units in, in a certain way with certain words and it doesn't fit and then uh, the regulator can sorry we cannot take it we, we don't know how to integrate it uh, so so really the the policy and the and the legal system uh, lawmakers etc they are lagging versus the technology at, at the moment uh, so, so this is one uh, kind of obstacle that is slowing down this. Another is, uh, especially outside Europe, is the current political power system, to call it that. You know, people in position are often connected to, for example, uh, the coal companies uh, in the in the country, and they could see some of their income or some of their influence being threatened from seeing this shift to happen. So we see a lot of kind of forces that also are trying to stop new technologies to enter the system because actually that, that could even uh, stop some of their funding in a way. Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you and maybe your colleagues as well that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism is just a click away. Try a subscription for 30 days for just €29. Euros. That gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to 
foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Follow the link in the show notes. Now, back to the show. That's a good point about uh, vested interests and such. Yeah. Um, if we say maybe that 2022 was the US's time to kind of put their hands up and say, you know, we're going to do this for the energy and climate policies with the IRA. Before that, it was Europe with the Green Deal. Yeah. Is there anyone in 2023 that you think could surprise everyone in terms of countries of being more ambitious with what they're going to do in terms of energy transition? Or has everybody already put their cards on the table and said, you know, China's doing this, India is doing this? Yeah. In one way, China has done this for many years already, you know? <laughs> And then the U.S. Uh, did, uh, did it. And I think the surprise, but the positive surprise will be related to, to EU, I think. Yes. But, but overall, uh, what has surprised me is the speed of the technology development. And I think actually that the, the technology, as I just mentioned, is, is ahead of the policies uh, also. So I think COP27 uh, was maybe a disappointment on the policy side. Uh, and a lot of people are looking at at stated policies and are then more pessimistic on the green shift, the speed of the green shift, than what I see when I actually look at actual projects and actual technologies. Mm-hmm. So, um, so as I said, look look more at the technologies than at the policies if you're if you want to have a realistic estimate of, of the speed of the green shift. And you said about COP twenty seven perhaps being a disappointment, <clears throat> disappointment, COP twenty eight this year, yeah. uh, logically. Um, this is going to be part of this global stock take of you know this two year long process, seeing where yeah. we actually are in terms of the Paris Agreement targets. Is this a really big, important milestone for energy efforts around the world? What does your data have to say about you know the, the targets? You said about one point six degrees. I think I think it's of course very important that uh, these regular COPs are happening. Um, uh, but I, uh, as I said, a lot of things are happening in parallel. As well, so even if there are some disappointments there, it's a good progress uh, because I think money counts, uh, economic uh, competitiveness is the most important driver still of, of this green shift. But but still, we have you know uh, a lot of uh, regulations or, or ways of measuring, for example, uh, carbon capture and storage or, or reduction of carbon uh, emissions. Uh, that is difficult to compare across countries. Uh, so th- this is this what, what is called this uh, this uh, point uh, six two and six four in in, in the legislation of uh, that, uh, how you can do bilateral trade of um, basically buying quotas from other countries. That actually could, if you have one billion dollar you want to spend on on a, on a reduction, you can actually do it much more efficient uh, in in developing economies, for example. Uh, but now it's quite unclear how. That will benefit your uh, how that will be actually be traced back to you in a way if you want to brag about <laughs> uh, seeing the, this reduction happening, um, and it's very important to do that in a proper manner so that you don't create the wrong incentives, because in some cases you actually might do things worse if you are making that legislation in the wrong manner. Uh, I think we, we we saw that happening in EU ten years ago actually with with some of the quotas uh, that was too high. So I, once I heard about this story about a, a part of uh, India had a problem with uh, with snake snake bites, you know, uh, poisonous uh, s- snake, and then uh, the, the government had the incentives to for every head of a snake you delivered, you got some dollars. Mm-hmm. What happened? The, the pr- this problem increased a lot because people started to breed the snakes. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> 
so uh, so uh, the incentives was a good intention, but it was actually not working. Uh, and some of the discussions that is on the dealing with with the quotas is has similar similarities to the story. So we need to avoid people kind of reading, <laughs> yeah, in 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 some countries. So so it's not easy. It's not straightforward. We have to respect that that this uh, we need a lot of of talk and and discussions and experimentation with this. But I'm still quite optimistic that that the policies will will uh, will partly drive and partly follow uh, the the technologies. And you don't feel that. Take the European Union, for example, which is not exactly known for its rapid policy making. You know, these mm. things often take years to, to even go yeah. from drawing board to law. It's a lot of different cultures and languages and uh, mindsets. So yes, but technology isn't going to go even further ahead in the meantime. Yeah, or, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So in terms of technology as well as innovation, we're we're actually here at um, the CCS Hydrogen Forum in Brussels to have this um, this interview. What is 2023 going to look like in terms for those two technologies in particular? Because in the last few years, there's been this hydrogen hype from a lot of people as well. Mm. Um, skepticism about how useful it's going to be in terms of where you get it from, how it's regulated. Mm. What are the main things that need to happen for the hydrogen industry globally this year for it to get that piece of the energy mix pie going forward? Uh, we have talked about hydrogen and the hydrogen society since the 1970s. Uh, but I, th- actually, I actually think no, it's happening. But it will not be a complete hydrogen society as someone has uh, kind of described it, because batteries is going to take part of the segments. You know, for example, the road traffic. I think batteries will win. But still, hydrogen is very relevant for aviation, shipping, uh, steel making, chemical making, uh, and quite some other applications. Not really for energy storage as such, but for end user applications. And and. Uh, but it, of course, it will take time. We are following all these different uh, electrolyzer manufacturing uh, companies. You know, it's like a fifteen uh, big uh, globally, uh, and their capacities. And uh, if you if you scrutinize their plants, uh, most of these plants are too optimistic, actually. Uh, so so maybe maybe they will deliver half of what they promise in in, in five years. But in total, I think uh, the electrolyzer production capacity can be like. Uh, maybe 200 gigawatt in 2030, uh, and, and gradually then you will have accumulated maybe three, uh, so some 300 to 400 gigawatt installed by them, which will produce uh, uh, yeah, uh, 30 uh, to 40 million tons. Then, then we are some years into the 2030s actually. So because you need 10 gigawatt to produce one million ton uh, approximately. So, um, so. It is happening. It will be a S-shaped curve, you know, this sigmoid curve. <laughs> it will be exponential growth for the next years. It will be some setbacks, I think, but the overall trend, I see a lot of things scaling. And also that is also, you know, we get a lot of innovation. So it's maybe, and we need the market to experiment also. So we need 10 different projects in parallel. And it will end up that three of them will be successes and seven of them will be failures. And then you will scale kind of on the, on the successes. But, but I see both is, is irrational to produce hydrogen, uh, especially when you get uh, stranded electrons, like you get close to wind uh, turbines, etc. And it's, it's irrational to, to consume hydrogen as well. So, so it will come together, I think. And, 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 uh, 
And I uh, just presented here uh, today a uh, quite uh, optimistic scenario of, uh, of a growth to 350 million tons by 2050. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's actually 2030 is very uncertain. You know, it, it could be a factor of five different from what you get because it's just in the ramp up phase. You mentioned before actually about how grid storage batteries um, face these difficulties. Electrolyzers are coming as well at scale down the line. How are energy mixes going to actually look? Is it going to be someone who owns a battery that then puts a wind farm on it? Or is it someone's going to own a wind farm that puts a battery on it? How? Yes, I, I think uh, batteries will revolutionize the grid. Mm-hmm. And I, it will be <clears throat> business case to implement it together with upstream resources. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, every solar farm will have a battery plant. Because if not, you risk uh, to get not get paid for your electrons in the middle of the day because of the competition. So uh, today, uh, a battery farm adds about thirty dollars per megawatt hour in cost to the uh, and, and if the levelized cost is forty for for the solar plant, yes, then then you can instead of selling that for maybe twenty or ten in the middle of the day, you can sell it in the evening for eighty or one hundred, and it only adds thirty dollars of cost. So it is actually already a business case to integrate uh, battery farms with the upstream. Uh, especially solar, it goes hand in hand with solar because you get 365 cycles per year and, uh, and then you get high capital productivity. For wind, it is not that good fit. Some places it is uh, uh, if you have, uh, if the breeze, you know, the morning and afternoon breeze is the main resource, then it goes well with, with batteries actually. But if you have the normal low pressure, high pressure type of weather, then it's more uh, three, four days cycles of, of a lot of wind and, and uh, seven days cycle of, of a very calm wind. Mm-hmm. And then the capital uh, would be too high to use to store that on the batteries, at least with the current batteries. Maybe you get some flow batteries or something that will be different in the future. Um, so th- then you need other ways to store it. Uh, so uh, so uh, so we will find a yeah. So so th- that that's on the upstream side. <laughs> On the middle side, uh, in the in the middle of the grid, I think it makes a lot of sense for the TSO to integrate battery farms in their grid as well, because then they can optimize the grid. And you don't need to design the grid for peak loads, but you can actually do uh, design the grid for more continuous flow. And you can use weather forecast, etc., to upload or download, you know, some parts of the grid. So we know that uh, in this part of, of, of Europe or whatever, it will be calm weather for three days. Okay source that so that you will manage the morning peak every day with not from the grid uh, real-time transmission but for uh, night transmission to, to charge the batteries but also it, it's, it will be a lot of business care. And, and by the way uh, also the batteries has a very important effect on on stabilization of the, of the frequency etc it has other functions uh, to, to stabilize the, the quality of the power which has a value of its own yeah which has a value, so, so it's a good uh, combined uh, benefit you get from the battery plants. But also for con- on the consumers, it makes sense to, to have batteries. Mm-hmm. For the households, to combine it with your own solar panels. Uh, you can even use your car as a battery. But also for hospitals, for industri- industries, whatever, uh, you can actually trade also with, with some of the surplus battery you have, you know, based on, on, on security of supply or whatever you need. So I think it will be a lot of new markets also developing for this 
day trade and minute trade. Also, it will be optima- automatic uh, kind of ways of trade also, I think, to optimize this. So it, it will re- the grid will really be filled up with batteries, which will take down the over- overall investments in the rest of the grid. Uh, so just now I, I talked to one, uh, one utility company in, in Norway. They were uh, up in Trendelag, you know, in the middle of Norway. They were uh, planning a new line to a very f- distant district. And that was quite costly. But suddenly they realized that it was a much better business case to just place uh, two uh, containers with batteries into that part of the country. And then they didn't need to upgrade the grid. So they just charged it in the night and they used that for the morning and afternoon peak. And then they, they came out of this uh, with a much less investments, but with the same service to the population. So this is also the example of, of this is actually happening already. It really does seem like the Nordic countries are leading the way to some extent with these grids of the future, shall we say, or decentralization, how, where power comes from, where it's used. And yeah. you see that as being um, transferable to other countries as well. There's nothing specific about Norway, Sweden, Finland. That No, but um, yes, the, the battery technology, I think uh, that has been actually more Australia and parts of US and other places has been leading on, on actually uh, the battery uh, side. And, and all the Nordic countries are also quite different, actually. You know, Norway has has the, the, the hydropower as a very good balancing. So that in one way they don't need that much batteries <laughs> overall. So, but of course, uh, Nordic countries and Denmark are still leading on on the green uh, power. Uh, you know, with a, with a very high speed of especially offshore wind development. So. Um, but every country has a different uh, power mix and will need different solutions. And, uh, and a lot of these solutions are now becoming available. And yes, partly uh, you can look to the Scandinavia for inspiration, but you can also look to California or you can look to Australia or other places. One final question, potentially the most difficult one, the one that I struggle the most with when I'm writing articles and things, uh, nuclear in yeah. 2023. Where does it go from here? Are we looking at sort of peak nuclear at the moment and it's only going to be developing countries, shall we say, that are going to take these investments in nuclear or are we going to see some sort of renaissance in the coming years? What what are its fortunes look like? Yes. Well, when we are doing assessment of technologies, we're trying to look at real projects rather than PowerPoint presentation in a way. (laughs) And if you look at real projects... Uh, it's three big projects in Europe. It's, it's Flamerville, it's, it's Olkiluto in Finland, and it's uh, Hinkley Point in the UK. The, the first one was in France. On average, they come up with uh, they come out with ten billion dollars per gigawatt. Uh, in comparison, some of the solar parks in Spain zero point five billion dollars per gigawatt. So basically, the uh, the big problem for nuclear is is the economy. The, the the sign was that it should be cost four or five, mm-hmm. and, and some places in China even two or three. But uh, but we see that the total levelized cost of energy nuclear really struggle to deliver. So it's far too expensive. But then there, there's marketing, and I say this PowerPoint presentation about uh, modular uh, reactors, Rolls-Royce and others are, are marketing this. They don't exist. They might exist 10 years from now, but then they have to compete with, uh, with the cost of solar and wind at that time. And also what you need in the future is actually not a base load. You need a very flexible counter load 
when it's not wind uh, and, and solar, then you need a lot of energy, but with very low capital cost for that one. So in one sense, it's better to have a, a cheap gas-fired power plant, even if the gas is expensive, because you will only use it for some hours, now and then. So in that sense, uh, it's, it's difficult to... To I mean, the average price you achieve for the electrons from a nuclear plant will also be lower and lower because you will compete with solar and wind. You cannot turn it off and on several times a day. So that's, that's also one issue. Uh, but also it's, it's a geopolitical issue is that both China and Russia is very involved in the nuclear power plant chain, supply chain. And even American uh, nuclear plants need supply from Russia. To, to be, it's not only uranium that you get from, or this yellow cake that you get from Kazakhstan and partly from Canada, but it's also a lot of uh, other feedstock that you need. So, and, and we see that, uh, that uh, these technologies are marketed quite aggressively to Eastern European countries or to Africa, etc. And in that sense, uh, from Russia and, and uh, China. So in that sense, it's quite good that that uh, countries like uh, UK or Rolls-Royce can counter-market these other technologies. And, and, and then when people are sitting down and really doing the math, they will find out uh, three or five years from now that in any case, it's much cheaper to have <laughs> renewables. You know? so, and, and it's also a lot of, uh, you know, it's very complicated projects still, and it, you need a lot of competence. And a lot of that competence is gone. Uh, so uh, nuclear, to sum up, made a lot of sense in the 1970s and especially in the 1980s. But as, as, as I see today, I see that as an outdated and, and, and uh, technology with a basically far too costly. So the, it's going to be more about maintaining what's already been built. Yeah, but we already see some, some projects, new projects are coming, you know, and, and many politicians like it still, despite the very high cost, you know. Uh, I think some of these projects will happen. I think some of them will be seen as economic scandals 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. Also, like we have seen for the last three big projects also. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. It makes you wonder how many more uh, cautionary tales are needed. You know, most expensive building in the world, 10 yeah. years overdue, and so yeah, on. So etc. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Aaron, I thank you for your time. It's been a great chat. I really enjoyed the optimism and also the, the realism you brought to looking ahead to where the energy transition is going mm. and what we can expect from these new technologies and um, real good insight. So thank you. Thank you. So there we have it a peer into the crystal ball and insights from one of the most intelligent people in the energy business. Healthy dose of optimism and realism all at once, I think you'll agree. Now, before the show, I asked you by how much did China outdo its investments in coal power by pumping more money into deploying renewables? Was it twice as much, six times as much, 11 times as much, or 15 times as much? The answer was... China actually invested 11 times as much in renewables compared to coal back in 2022. Amazing stuff. Thank you once again for tuning into the Policy Dispatch. We'll be back soon with another episode. Do check out Foresight's other podcasts in the meantime, available wherever you do your listenings. And goodbye for now.